0: welcome to episode three of Passive Attack, the Asset First podcast. Steve, how are you today?
1: I'm very well, thanks. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Are the markets keeping you busy? Is there anything in particular that's keeping you awake at night at the moment? They're not awake, no.
1: I mean, there's, uh, there's a few things to keep me awake at my desk, but um, uh, that's during the day generally.
0: And so what do you think of this forthcoming election then?
1: Well, I think it's much needed. depends. Uh, obviously, if we get a, a we get a reasonable majority, then that's going to be better, certainly for the markets than a, well, a majority on the right of centre rather than on the left. That's going to be pretty good news for the markets, I think. But um uh, we'll see. Polls are uh, indicative of a reasonable lead for uh, the Conservatives. The bookies have moved the Conservatives to, I mean, up until uh, about six or seven days ago, the bookies had a hung parliament as the uh, most likely outcome as we speak uh, a Tory majority is is the marginal most likely outcome with a hung parliament being close to evens so things are moving a bit but we'll see it's uh, it's tricky isn't it the, the polls um reasonable degree of error in them so um
0: yeah don't we know it thing that's been happening before we got to this election but for the last since we last spoke is this significant strengthening of sterling when we saw the significant weakening of sterling not the recent one but the one back off the uh, original referendum there was a fairly instant uplift in FTSE 100 values because of the uplift in foreign earnings passing back into into the UK and we're not seeing the opposite of that now we're not seeing the stock market crashing as a result of sterling strengthening
1: why well, there are a couple of reasons for that, one of which is that if you take a no deal off the table, which is what sterling appears to be predicting, then there's some positive degree of sentiment around that, so you're going to get an uplift in asset prices because some of that uncertainty is removed from the outlook. And also, the the strength of the increase in sterling hasn't been huge. If you take a slightly longer term look at where the pound has been over the last four or five years, you'll see that post Referendum, there's a big decline, and then there's a further decline after that. So, sort of reached its bottom point sometime towards uh, mid to late 2016. And then it's great, it sort of traded in a sort of range bound fashion ever since then. And then more recently, coming with Boris Johnson's election and his insistence that we're going to leave on the 31st of October, uh, with or without a deal, that drove sterling back down to that previous um, tested low. Uh, and what we're really seeing now is a bounce from that from that low point back to sort of the upper uh, level of that range bound uh, basis so th- so the increase in sterling hasn't been anything like the previous decline in sterling where we noticed the big uplift in in FTSE 100 stocks so that's part of the reason but the second is that you know you can't really expect the reciprocal of of any increase in or decrease in sterling to reflect fully in in the FTSE 100 because uh, well a Not all of the earnings in the FTSE 100 are priced in overseas currencies. And also, it depends what's going on in those currencies. And secondly, there's an awful lot more to uh, what moves the FTSE 100 than than just the currency. If we were to forecast a significant increase in sterling, which I don't think is particularly likely even with the withdrawal bill in its current form, even if we were to forecast a big increase in sterling, I wouldn't necessarily uh, expect the FTSE 100 to do badly out of that.
0: What's the latest on Trump and China? Are we near to a resolution?
1: Well, we've got a sort of two-tiered outlook on this. There's a sort of headline, you know, you buy this amount of stuff and we'll buy that amount of stuff. That kind of agreement, I think, is relatively easy to read or comparatively easy to read, just on a straightforward basis. But compared to the second part of that, which is you know how China supports its um, industries and Theft of intellectual property, things like that. I, I, those are those are issues that just cannot go away. You know, the, the kind of the, the requirements that the U.S. administration would have on on China really are. It's just impossible for a communist country, for example, to stop any state subsidy of its uh, of its industry. That's just you know, that's the very nature of communism. So we, we might see some uh, line, some sort of market or reasonably short term market pleasing entente uh, between the U.S. and the Chinese. I don't, I don't think I've heard. People suggest that, you know, this is what Trump really needs ahead of the 2020 presidential election. But I'm not sure that's necessarily true. He's not under a great deal of pressure at home from either his support base or either from his his political opponent. So we may or may not get some kind of agreement. I've heard some warm words spoken from policymakers, both in China and America. So there's there's the I think the market is, is reasonably optimistic that we'll get some good news on that at some stage soon. But... The bigger picture, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that there's a big change in the way the global system is operating. And certainly antagonism between China and America is is here to stay. I can only see it getting worse, in fact. But maybe we'll see some thawing of the relationship, at least on a superficial level, that the markets might find pleasing.
0: So if we are going to operate in a world of heightened tension, should we be adopting our tactical positions to take account of this in
1: any way? One thing that we know when we construct the portfolios is that there's a great deal of uncertainty. And there is always this uncertainty, which is really what confuses me when people say, oh, we're going to wait for condition A to resolve itself, and then we might invest. Because condition A, if it resolves itself, will be replaced by condition B. Given the level of what I would call proper diversification inside the portfolios, I think we've already accounted for that kind of uncertainty. In fact, what we're doing now is really waiting for opportunities to buy riskier stocks at more at more attractive prices, and if this increase in uncertainty, certainly on the policy front, manifests itself in in lower prices in various regional markets, then I, I think we're in a quite nice position to try and take advantage of that. We're placed for it, and we're waiting for the opportunities that it presents.
0: Expanding a bit on the models that we have and the positions that they're taking at the lowest risk end, at the defensive end, we are obviously lower amounts equities, higher amounts fixed interest, but we exclude overseas equities at the low end. The thinking being we don't want to add a currency risk into a, into the lowest risk portfolios, but then arguably higher up, let's say on the balance portfolio, we don't hedge out currency risk, which, is a, which could be a possibility. Part of the thinking being that actually adds in turn further diversification into the portfolios. Is that thinking right and if so why therefore should we not consider introducing some overseas equity exposure into the defensive portfolios
1: there are many ways of skinning a cat aren't there but so that the equity content in a low risk portfolios really is a hedge against big declines in the in the market for government bonds so that that's where we the diversity the proper diversification that i'm talking about really is between government bonds specifically set corporate bonds aside for one second and set uh, other asset classes that people think traditionally are, are diversifiers like, you know, uh, property or absolute return, those kind of things. So, but the, the real diversification that, uh, that we connect with is uh, is that between government bonds and, and the equity market. So our basket of equities in the low-risk portfolio is really what we're looking for is enough equity exposure to try and diversify away the significant risks of, of capital loss on the government bond side. Broadly speaking, we've used domestic stocks to do that. But equally, we could use overseas stock because of the additional risks that are associated with overseas markets. So if you were to rank, I guess, at least in my mind, if you ranked how risky equity markets are, so we take the major indexes, you've got sort of S&P 500, which is risky. And then the FTSE 100 is either slightly more risky or slightly less risky, but it's not far off that kind of thing. But then when you start adding exposure to Asia-Pacific markets, Japanese market, uh, European, a sort of broad European market, then you're looking at increasing the sort of beta, the sort of market risk that you've got there. So you can have uh, more UK equities, a sort of broader mix of UK equities than you could if you were to swap out and have uh, some overseas equities. And the second problem with that is you have to have a reasonable exposure to European and Japanese stocks. To hedge out your u s dollar stock so if we if we just to use a if we used say a world index to give us additional overseas exposure it would be quite quite sensitive to movements in the in in cable the the pound versus the dollar so you 'd have to increase your exposure to european uh, euro assets and Japanese and yen assets to to do that and and then doing so what you're really doing is increasing the beta of the portfolio there so it's a tough one. I mean, there are pros and cons to both of those approaches. And certainly, if you look at the last few years, then the US market has outperformed all other markets. So um, there's a sort of, there's definitely a headwind towards UK. or there has been a headwind for UK stocks of late. Whether that continues is a different question. This is the way that we've done it. it seems to be working okay, or has worked okay. You can never find the optimal position in advance, but I think we've got a reasonable position in that regard. But that's the, the basic answer is that the broad. Uh, diversification is going to be between government bonds and equities, and we want equities in sufficient quantities to to hedge out some of the more explicit risks in the government bond market.
0: So certainly, the domestic approach has achieved the desired returns for the last ten or eleven years. But I guess starting ten or eleven years ago, uh, we did have we actually had some interest rates ten or eleven years <laughs> yeah. ago, and we had. But as we covered the other week, when I said, "Well, how much lower can interest rates go?" And it's, of because the floor is not zero. The floor could be negative if things got extreme. So mm. there's still, therefore, some inbuilt protection that from the fixed interest against such an extreme condition, I guess. Want to ask now about, um, well, they used to be called ethical portfolios, but they're called ESG portfolios these days. We're getting an increased demand from investors saying, can we run a range of risk-graded portfolios employing ethical-type investments. We have looked at this over the years. The conclusion I came to was I couldn't find anything to replicate what we're doing, employing ethical asset classes. What's your thoughts on this today?
1: So it it, it depends on the degree of ethicalness. It really it depends largely on, on how... Uh, is ethicalness a word? Yeah, I don't think it is. It is more possible now certainly, than it was five years ago. So if what we were looking for was sort of USITs, uh, physically backed, fully replicated indexes with a ESG screen attached to them, then um, there are some uh, out there now. and A couple are only uh, less than a year old and things, run by um, some of the big passive houses. So you wouldn't really... It doesn't necessarily matter that they're young funds. They're, they're run by... Uh, companies with uh, expertise and ability to run these kind of things well, but so it, it's certainly more true now on the equity side um, and on the passive side. Uh, I think in 12 months' time it will be even more true. Uh, there's certainly a, uh, a terrific amount of interest, and um, asset management companies are not blind to that interest, and, and certainly willing to willing to facilitate. Uh, profits in that that end of the market, but um, it it gets a little bit more difficult. I mean, even trying to find a passive equivalent of a a corporate bond fund, small companies, high-yield bonds, those kind of things, that passive equivalents are not there necessarily, and and for good reason. You know, there are structural rigidities that really are difficult to overcome. So um, it's increasingly possible uh, to do so. I think in 12 months' time, it will be even more possible.
0: Are there any other um, issues that you've you've been encountering in the last month, Steve, that you'd like to just bring up today? Anything that's on your mind or on
1: your investors' minds? So, if we take some of the issues that have concerned us for the last few months, things like a inverted U.S. U.S. yield curve and a sort of slowdown in manufacturing, uh, some concerns maybe that a slowdown in manufacturing might spread itself to a uh, to, to the services sector. Some of the things that we have been watching have been on our radar, reasons to be cautious. Some of those have have subsided, at least in my mind, uh, if you look at the extent. So the the yield curve has steepened uh, in the last three weeks or so. Uh, So we're no longer negative at the three-month, 10-year horizon or at the two-year, 10-year horizon. So... Our concerns about the potential for a U.S. recession are certainly receding. Some of the spillover, we're not necessarily seeing any spillover from the manufacturing decline into the services sector. Services are a much bigger part of um, of certainly the Western uh, economies. If we had concerns that this might be more than a mid-cycle slowdown or a sort of late cycle slowdown, any concerns that we might be seeing, a slowdown might be washing into a downturn, I think, uh, a beginning to recede. I'm not sure we've seen the worst of the data yet, but it seems to me, uh, given some of the indicators, uh, some of the leading indicators, it seems to me that maybe, uh, certainly in the the next uh, couple of months, we might see the... We might see that to stabilize. It seems to me the global economy is stabilized to some extent so that's um, that 's pretty good news. This is not always true but if you if you correlate equity market performance with global growth uh, during periods of increased global growth, equity markets tend to do well. So if you remember back in two thousand and seventeen uh, europe uh, the European economy exceeded expectations and that led to slightly to you know to increases in in uh, global growth forecasts, uh, equity market did quite well in, in 17, 18 less so. And then 2019 uh, has been um, reasonably difficult, for, depending on where you're looking. So it, it's difficult to see how global growth is going to re-accelerate from here. So if, if we get sort of moderate rates of growth in the U.S., I reckon the U.S. economy is growing at sort of 1.8% at the moment. Uh, and Maybe it'll finish the year around about 2% or, or maybe a wee bit lower. Let's say it's you know somewhere around there. Uh, that's a moderate rate of growth in, in the US. China's slowing. If if China can maintain some pace of growth somewhere between 55 and 6% for the next 12 months or so, that's a sort of moderate rate of growth for the Chinese. And then to get global growth to, into, a, into a faster pace, you really need Japan to join the party or you need the European Union to join the party. And the Europeans, okay, more and more monetary easing. You know, we, we always expected the European Central Bank to to re-establish its asset purchase program. It was, you know, we were completely unconvinced that um, that QE was 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 approaching its approaching its demise. It, it so restarted the restart, in fact, in in two days at the pace of twenty billion euros a month for an open-ended period of time until well until such time as inflation approaches their a uh, near two percent target. So that's monetary policy can only do so much. Okay. Maybe it's supportive of asset prices, but is it the cause of a new bull market in European equities? I, I, I have my doubts. I have quite a high conviction uh, that those doubts are correct, in fact. And uh, what we really need is a, a reacceleration acceleration of, of uh, economic growth. And that's only really going to come if, if the national governments begin to to apply some kind of stimulus, some kind of fiscal stimulus is, is needed, or structural stimulus. Germans, the Germans have got a, a budget surplus, in fact, I think around about 2% of GDP. Uh, okay, it's not going to be the case that the Germans are going to run a are a deficit, they're not going to turn a surplus into a deficit, but they could turn a surplus into a smaller surplus, I, I, I guess, but they seem reluctant to do so. And there's a, there's a sort of political uncertainty in Germany clouding the outlook as well. Uh, but, and then you've got, uh, you know, if, even if we get some kind of a taunt ton- between uh, America and China, uh, I think Trump will have his eyes on um, uh, on Europe in terms of a uh, improved uh, trade situation with those two. So Europe is facing some significant headwinds uh, at the moment too. So it's difficult to see where this reacceleration acceleration of economic growth is going to come from. The good news is that the slump in manufacturing isn't isn't replicated in, in services, in consumer spending, things like that. Uh, that's all good news, but really that stops things getting worse. It doesn't make things better necessarily. So, so we're seeing some of the tail risks recede a wee bit, uh, but the major, there's no compelling reason to be, overly optimistic about the performance of risk assets in the in the forward period so uh, again we come back to this slightly defensive side of neutral seems the right place for the time being
0: thank you finally defensive side of neutral is has been our stance for some time it's done us very well do you think we should maintain that stance in our view of um the rugby at the weekend (laughs)
1: um yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? But um, yeah, we're certainly underweight Wales and Scotland and uh, Ireland and overweight England for the time being. I, I think we've got a very good chance of um, winning the World Cup. South Africa, are a very, very, very good side, and um, they probably match us. They probably match us mm. for that. So it, also Whereas I, New Zealand, for some reason, didn't. So uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm very optimistic about it, but it, it'll be a it'll be a great match. But um,
0: but we are yes, we are we're about neutral on our UK. Or English, waiting, but we are extremely underweight South African. Um, to, but we'll maintain that and just and uh, just play the
1: long game and stick with England, shall we? Certainly, yeah. <laughs> okay.